Welcome to the Hunt Back Country podcast. This is episode number 418. And our guest today, or should I say guests, are you guys, listeners of the show. We're joined today by two buddies who are going from Kansas out west for their very first western hunt. We talk about how their previous hunting experiences in Kansas may or may not translate to this upcoming hunt, the questions that they had on planning and logistics and scouting and gear and all that stuff. So this is the first of quite a few before and after the hunt episodes that we have recorded with you guys, listeners of the show, and that we will be sharing in coming weeks. So we have this one coming. We have a whole bunch more species all over the country, different states, different seasons, different times of the year to hear about the hunting plans that you guys have, the questions that you had for us, And then, of course, follow-ups later this year with all these guests to hear how the hunt went for them, the lessons they learned, and so much more. I'm excited to share these with you today. Thanks for tuning in. If you want to be sure you receive all future episodes, just be sure to hit subscribe or follow in your podcast app so that you receive those automatically. And even if you're going on a hunt this year and you hadn't already reached out to us or, you know, we haven't recorded a story If you have a cool hunting story from this fall, reach out to let us know partially. We'd just love to hear about it, hear the lessons you learned, maybe see some success photos. Or if you think you have a story uh, that would be helpful for the podcast, let us know about that as well. You can always send an email to podcast at exomountaingear.com. Right now, though, let's go ahead and dive into today's episode. Matt, Steve, welcome to the podcast today. Super excited to uh, chat with you guys on this uh, Before the Hunt series. I've done this before when I have two guys on the line who, you know, kind of know each other and and whatnot, and that is to introduce each other. So, uh, Matt, tell me a little bit about Steve, just like big picture background and stuff like that. Oh, this is going to be awesome. This is a great one. So Steve and I have known each other for 25 years, something like that. Um, Like most teenagers, uh, I met Steve because I was trying to get him to buy me beer uh, when I was (laughs) 15 or 16. Um, Yeah, I know. So we've known each other since we were kids in high school. Um, We, you know, always kind of started doing the outdoors together uh, when, you know, backpacking in in high school and and camping. joined the military steve when he went and took the test he ate the crayons so he joined the marine corps um and i and i joined the army so it's uh we kind of went our separate ways there and then lucky enough to room together in college for a bit and you know, just kind of kind of stayed friends throughout we're both uh, late onset hunters so i remember one of the first times i was trying to think steve the first animal we actually killed in vengeance was a turkey i think right from the yeah. descent so you know first time we ever went hunting together was ambushing a turkey um and then from there steve had kids before me um started bringing them up in you know kind of the same outdoors mindset uh, earlier than him and i kind of got onto, and then we were lucky enough just to move within you know 10 minutes of each other so kind of over the past couple of years, I've uh, stayed in, started hunting again. We both got got him into bow hunting. Um, 
so we started, you know, picked up a bow nine years or so ago. And it was fun because we started going bow hunting inside. And it was right when he had his daughter. So he, he'd bring his daughter to the range and we'd switch off uh, holding his daughter while the other one was shooting targets. Um, and then, you know, this, what we're going to talk about today and this, this event is Steve's brainchild. It was, you know, a, Steve's always one of those guys that, you know, come up with a good idea and he's on board. Um, you know, whether it's burying a body or, you know, going on an elk hunt. So, you know, this one was what he put together and has definitely been the driving force in both, you know, get my butt outside to exercise and put the pack on to re researching the gear. Um, and so it was lucky enough that uh, Steve did the research and I think together we found some of the zones. Um, but yeah, it's just Steve's background is military and then into IT. So that's probably a, a 25 years and a rambling sentence, but I think that's what Volkmer is to me. Well, and yeah, uh, don't forget, I also went to school for respiratory therapy. So, oh yeah, medical professional before IT <laughs> and commercial diving. <laughs> yeah, that's right. He taught me how to scuba dive. So Steve and I have fortunately been all over the world together. We went to Australia, New Zealand, scuba diving in both places, and uh, so we've been around for a second. Awesome, Steve. Are you going to add to that for Matt? Yeah, so no, it's a true story that it wasn't that Matt came to me to buy beer for his party in high school. Um, and incidentally, his twin brother works with me at my company. So um, I could tell this story every now and again about how I know Dave and his brother, Matt. Um, but I ended up saving his party and I didn't even drink in high school, but I knew friends that I worked with. It's like, hey, we need to do this. And, and kind of since I didn't know, we went to school together, but we didn't know each other. He was a year behind me. So we met through a mutual friend who played football with Matt and wrestled with me. And kind of beyond that, like a week later, summer, you know, summer vacation starts and him and I were out camping and hiking and, you know, running around with the dog and just being outdoorsy, which was a, was a blast. And we've done some silly adventures and some incredibly awesome adventures. Um, but yeah, so, you know, Matt, um, I went to the Marine Corps and was kind of off and off through, through school, um, went to boot camp right after I graduated. Matt ended up going through the officer program in ROTC at KU. Um, so he got to go adventure around the world as an officer and then ultimately came back to Kansas and we started getting to hang out again. Um, but that was really the one, like you said, we're laid up both late onset hunters and his stepdad owned some land with a friend South of Kansas city. And Matt calls me up and says, Hey, uh, you want to go turkey hunting? That sounds awesome. What do I do? <laughs> but you need to get a turkey license. Cool. What do I get that? You go to, you know, Bass Pro or whatever. Uh, what do I need? Got a shotgun. Okay. I've got a shotgun. I've got some camo and, uh, incidentally, we didn't need the camo because they've got this, you know, they had this, you know, shoot house basically set up that was, you know, heated and uh, silenced and had stools to sit in. I mean, it was hunting is not what I would call it. It was shooting, um, but it was a good time. And like Matt said, I had kids after that. So kind of stepped back for a while because I wanted to make sure I wasn't ditching my wife and with little ones. Um, my kids are about 15 months apart. So I felt guilty about that. Um, but yeah, so that's. Matt kind of summed up the rest of it. We were fortunate to live close enough to each other. And um, both of our kids are, well, at least my kids are old enough now that I can start getting away a little bit to do some adventurous stuff. And actually my daughter's nine and is wanting to get into hunting. So I took her turkey hunting for the first time this year and she wants to go deer hunting this fall. Um, so that's something I get to share with her now. Yeah. So you guys are in the, the Kansas City area for listeners you may not know, it's like right on the border of Missouri and Kansas and definitely some some good hunting over there for turkey. Have you guys gotten into deer, whitetail in terms of big game over there much? Oh yeah. 
and Matt's been doing it longer than I have, and he's better. And I thought I'm very enthusiastic. And it, it for me, it was really just two two deer seasons ago, so two seasons ago. And I was kind of like, I'd really like to go deer hunting, but I don't know where I'm going. I don't know what I'm doing. Um, like Matt said, we both got bows nine years ago, so I know how to shoot a bow, and I've got a bow. And for me, it was surely thousands and thousands of people in the Midwest don't own private land and don't have somebody to take them hunting and teach them. Surely I can figure this out. I'm pretty good with Google. And that's kind of where it started for me to get into deer hunting. And Matt and I did hunt deer. I guess I should say, we, you know, 10 years ago, we were hunting deer, but never shot one. They always came out during turkey season and never came out during deer season, except for the very first day we went out the first 30 minutes a doe came out like, no, no, there's a big buck out here. We'll pass on, pass on her and shoot the buck and never sell the buck. So <laughs> we were fortunate <laughs> enough to have a, a really cool range right down the road from us, um, elevated archery. So we get out and shoot 3d we try to get out and shoot 3, 3d a lot. And we have a friend that has a farm just 30 minutes from us. Um, so I've been fortunate enough to get out there. We, we started saddle hunting this last year, which was, Mark, I don't know if you guys have picked up saddles yet, but holy cow, that's that's fun. That's a whole that's a whole new world. Yeah, awesome. So, at what point did like how did this idea of an elk hunt come to play, and how long ago was it? I watch a lot of YouTube videos. Like, I don't really watch TV at my house. Pretty much all of the time, things I watch on TV is watching hunting shows on YouTube. So. You've got Born and Raised Outdoors, you've got Elk 101 and the Hunting Public. And I kind of started watching whitetail hunting videos with the Hunting Public. And then I saw, you know, the next video up is a link to an elk video. It's like, you know, this, uh, this looks cool. And I really like any kind of hunting you can do where you can call to an animal. That's my favorite part of turkey hunting is calling and, and you know, kind of having a dialogue with an animal, so to speak, with calls. So I love that aspect. Um, you know, being in Kansas for only eight, eight and a half hours away from Denver, it was like, you know what, maybe this is something that we can do. And, and that's really where the interest came from. This was just kind of last fall. I think uh, Matt and I were on a, on a trip with the backcountry hunters and anglers doing kind of a, a get together with the board um, down at El Dorado Lake. And I was like, Matt, we should do this next fall. And uh, that's kind of where it started. Yeah. Did it involve much arm twisting, Matt, or were you on board easily? Oh, no, I'm always up for a good time. Uh, you know, it's one of those things that we had talked about it and one of the things that really started materializing in it was when we were at that um, BHA thing, we were talking to a couple of the guys that go every year and, you know, to, for someone to give you their spots is, you know, akin to something very personal that I probably won't say on your podcast. Right. So um, when we kind of socialize this with, the, with some of the members or the, some of the board members, you know, two guys in particular were like, Hey, uh, open up Onyx. Right. And they not only gave us, guidance but they gave us spots um and, and kind of gave us their game plan for us to build our plan around and you know that that's really for me what kind of made it real is it, it took colorado it took how many sections in colorado down to like a manageable size and then we had a couple, another buddy of like hey this is how you scout you know scout on a map um and that's what really started to develop you know over time yeah, it's you know it's overwhelming to to start from scratch and oh, yeah. you know it's one thing to have like what you guys mentioned to like say YouTube videos no quantum one and they have fantastic resources that certainly cut that learning curve but then it's like a whole nother thing to then have this personal someone you know someone you can talk to someone who's been there and done that 
um, and to have that direct connection. So that's huge for you guys. Well, it's even, there's tons of information. I think you guys even talked about, you start looking at draws and different units, then you start balancing. We didn't have any points. Like we went in with zero points or a point. Um, And so it's almost just like better to throw a dart, see what you end up with and then fight the plan you get versus, I mean, we were spilling over maps and, you know, the, the odds differences of, of entire state is completely overwhelming. Uh, even when you kind of have an idea about what you're wanting to do, um, you know, where you're going to stay, where you're going to camp, how you're going to get out there, what your game plan is and in inclement weather. And yeah, it, it can, it can be extremely overwhelming for someone who has never done it, much less to spend limited time in Colorado. It, I mean, it sounds like Colorado was, uh, partially on the top of the list because the proximity, as you said, it's not too bad of a drive to get from the KC area to at least to the Denver area and wherever you're hunting from beyond that. Um, so from that perspective, um, definitely has its, its perks, but did you guys consider any other States or anything like that? Seriously? Not really. And mainly because we, we, just ignorance again trying to learn the different draw systems and the draw dates and everything else and i know there's there's services available and maybe next year that's something we get into we start you know subscribing to, to you know help us out with with draw odds and points and things like that but it was really just there's a lot of over-the-counter units and incidentally the unit where we've got a tag for uh, was over the counter the previous year and we found out kind of last second, like, oh, wait a minute, pouring over all the Colorado guides, like that's a draw unit now. Now we were fortunate enough to draw it on our first choice. So we're, we're all set. But going through that process, you know, Matt and I have talked about, well, hey, this sounds like, you know, let's, let's assume for a sec we're going to have a great adventure. Hopefully we can harvest something. But let's assume it's a great adventure and we do it again. Because, you know, it seems like one of those activities that most of the people you hear from say, you know, this is an every year, every other year type of event. So we started looking at, okay, let's look at Wyoming and Montana and you know, not as, as close as Colorado, but start putting in and, you know, acquiring points so that down the road we can say, hey, let's apply for New Mexico. If we don't get that, then our backup will be Wyoming or something like that. So we're, we don't have a plan per se, but we're working on one and kind of looking to potentially expand that in the future. Yeah, perfect. I mean, I think that you got to take that comprehensive approach and kind of step back and go big picture and just look at, you know, obviously every state has different opportunities and different, um, uh, structures for acquiring tags whether that's over the counter or preference point versus bonus point etc but if you start to like piece all that together you can come up with your own plan of at least a big picture strategy because you don't know what you're going to draw and how things are going to work out exactly but you can kind of at least consider all the options and what is a reasonable way to say hey we can hunt here is a fallback over the counter but maybe every two to three years we could probably draw this or get that or what have you and we should probably add that you can hunt elk in Kansas, but again, it's a draw system. So we're like, you know what? We'll go hunt Colorado and we'll just buy the points for, for antelope and elk this year in Kansas. And then, you know, the next year or two, we might try and get one of those hunts in as well. Were you guys set on, I mean, this ties into being uh, seasons and tags and all that, but were you set on archery specifically? Yes. Yeah. We wanted to hunt during September. Yeah. Just going back to that calling and interaction. I mean, everything I've seen, I've, I've obviously I've never done it, but it looks incredible. Like, you know, being out, I know being out in the woods in the morning when you get a, a big gobble that, you know, is rattling through the woods and the thunder chickens are firing off and that's just an awesome experience. So hopefully we'll get the same thing with, uh, with elk, but yeah, I want to be able to hunt, you know, rut, pre-rut that time frame was what we were looking for. How did you start 
when this became real, we're doing this, we have some intel from guys on a, a unit and maybe even area within that unit. I mean, that, that alone is a huge, uh, it, it takes a lot to narrow that down. <laughs> so you guys already had that jump start. But like, what are what are some of the other things that when this became real, yes, we're doing this, was on the list of like, we need to figure this out or we need to get this or we need to make that decision type stuff? Uh, narrow it down to a specific week um, was part of it. And then, you know, get my time off in. And then uh, looking at really gear lists, you know, dialing in gear lists because it's a case of we don't know what we don't know. We've got lots of experience backpacking, but not, you know, this is not exactly the same thing. Similar, some some crossover there for sure, but making sure we had a good you know gear list and we're prepared and we've got our backups and things like that. Uh, and then also, quite frankly, physical fitness. I'd be uh, I'd be a bold faced liar if I told you Matt and I are in the same shape we were both in when we were in the military. <laughs> yeah, it, it along with the thrill of getting the hunt together, we were definitely like two kids on Christmas. Uh, realizing now that we get to go buy all these toys. And so, you know, <laughs> the first two things we bought were boots and a, and a bag, right? Um, uh, because we've had tons of backpacks over the year, but nothing that was going to sustain what we were about to do. So that was, those are probably the first two purchases we got and started breaking those things in. Before we dive into gear back up to pick in a week, how did you guys make that decision? Uh, we knew we wanted to hunt September. And honestly, I went to Elk 101 and read some articles from Corey Jacobson. And he kind of broke down, you know, for training, he, he does an awesome job of hunting, you know, fall 2023, here are the four weeks of September, and here's what you can look for in each of those. And for us, it was just, well, it's week two or week three, we chose week two. So it's going to be uh, uh, right after a full moon, so it should be dark, hopefully get the elk out a little bit earlier in the evening and later in the morning feeding, um, take advantage of that, yeah, hopefully. And um, that's kind of, that's probably as complicated as the decision really was. Jumping back to gear, you mentioned boots and a pack off the bat. I, we've said many times on our podcast, at least, like those are the kind of the two most important things. Uh, and we say that unbiasedly, even though we sell packs, like I'd, I'd be glad to tell someone else to buy a pack that's not ours if they're considering something that's far inferior even to uh, one of our quote unquote competitors. Uh, and then obviously boots are very important. How did you, you know, we, again, we've talked about boots a ton. For you guys, what were you looking for? How did you kind of select boots and then you know kind of test them verify them because obviously uh, kansas is a, a bit different than the rocky mountains there was a little bit of trust um steve after, I, I think it was the gear talk so I, I pinged we listened to the gear talk uh podcast um and i, I just i sent them a note about because we knew the boots we were looking at but we were kind of back and forth on packs and i sent them a note and they sent us a list and XO was on the top and I, I never even really had paid attention to a number of back, you know, these types of backpacks. I mean, we've always had Gregory's and Arcteric's and all your backpacking backpacks, but never a hunting backpack. And so um, when they came back with the, you know, I think XO was the first one on the top as so we started looking at it, got hooked there. Steve, how did we find the boots? It was the same thing. Uh, it was uh, it was live wild podcast. with oh, Warren, Quite yeah. frankly, you know, yeah. watching some of his videos and his podcasts and, um, you know, he, he definitely, uh, and I don't know if, if you want us name dropping what we're, what you can, we, what yeah, we, you can say whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So we got, we end up getting Schnee's boots, uh, yeah. out of Montana. It seems like all the cool gear manufacturers either in Idaho or Montana, sadly, nothing down here in Kansas, but, uh, <laughs> so it was, it was a lot of trust. It was reading a lot of reviews. Um, I'm kind of a, when I shop online, I research products for a long, long time. 
and I'm very patient until I say, yes, that's what I want. And then I'm wildly impatient. I'll press the <laughs> order button and then I'm like, it's been 20 minutes. Why isn't it at my door yet? Right. Um, but uh, we ended up, you know, kind of, we looked at other, other ones, uh, other manufacturers. And I think, I think with boots, you know, like a lot of gear, you could probably pick one of three or five top manufacturers and you're going to be happy with it. But based on the reviews we read, we, we went with those and I actually ended up ordering two different sizes because I was in between sizes and I was so nervous about ordering, you know, boots that were too small or big that I was walking around my house with a different boot on each side of my feet on each foot with different sizes for like four hours, you know, cause I want to take them outside and get tags on them, kept them clean. Um, so I looked ridiculous for a day or two trying to figure that out. But, um, yeah, that's, that's how we settled in the booze was just listening to recommendations from, you know, people in the industry that have got, you know, um, podcasts and, and YouTube. And I'm not sure that's the best way to choose gear necessarily, but again, being in Kansas, it's not like I can drive down the street and try on 15 different, you know, high-end boots outside of what Bass Pro sells. And it's no disrespect to Bass Pro, but um, we were looking for something more reliable because like you said, again, the two most important things probably for this type of hunt was boots and pack. I'll second that. I mean, uh, if you saw the tent comparison list that Steve came up with, uh, Steve sh- could, should start a shopping club. Uh, and so h- how I do it is whatever Steve decides on, I just buy the same thing. Uh, yeah. and so it, it works out, works out pretty well. But I mean, coming back from the military, you know, those are two things that like Steve and I have worn plenty of boots and worn plenty of packs. And we knew that like, those are the two things that they fail your host, you know, you can get ripped in your pants. You can do a lot of different things, but you know, messing up your feet, uh, especially on different inclines, that was a lot of something we spent a lot of time with. And we, we looked at their, the return policies, like Steve said, got to break him in. He actually went to a different size and kind of no sweats. That that was the biggest takeaway is make sure that whatever you buy from is open to letting you put it on and then walk around with it and send it back. So I was fortunate enough they just fit. Inside, not not outside, Matt, just inside. Just inside. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a great point to mention. It 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 is true of both boots and packs. Like you want to, especially ordering online, you want to be able to have something that you can try and have some assurance that returns aren't going to be an issue if for some reason it doesn't work out for you. And the customer service is the other part of that. I know Matt, Matt mentioned earlier singing the praises of Jake at EXO. At he's been phenomenal. I've bugged. He's probably got a picture of me in his office, but like, don't answer his call anymore. because <laughs> yeah. I've, I've wasted so many hours of his life answering my questions, but he's been fantastic. Yeah. Both emails and phone calls. Cool. Good. Um, what, so this is less nitty gritty on like e-scouting or gear or something like that, but this is almost backing up big picture. How do you, how are you guys looking at this hunt from goals, expectations, mindset? Like, what are you looking to really experience with us other than like, oh yeah, of course we want to go kill an elk. You know, honestly, we've been very, very, um, I think reasonable and tempered about our expectations of what success is. Like that was something him and I, Matt and I specifically discussed is what, what are we going to call the measurement of success? And it is going out and having a good time together and hopefully here, you know, getting into some elk. If we can harvest one, fantastic. If we can harvest two, because we both, both have a tag, even better, but really just getting out in the woods, you know, we've been able to go camping and go on a, you know, adventure together in many, many years. Um, so I think that's kind of, we've decided that success is getting home safely and having a good time in the woods. Um, and our approach is going to be, we're going to park and we're going to basically base camp in. So we're going to hike in with our gear, kind of set up a base camp, and then day hunt from that camp. Um, unless we can't find a single bugle and then we'll pick up and move and have some backup spots. But that was kind of the approach for it. 
Cool. Yeah, I wanted to touch on that, like how you're the logistics of a base camp versus being super mobile, et cetera. So when you say park and set up a base camp, you're hiking in and setting up a base camp and day hunting from there? Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. And then about how far do you anticipate that base camp being from the truck? You know, if based on the pins that that um, Matt mentioned that were people kind of to share with us, it's really not that far. It's almost disappointing. Like, I know people say <laughs> you have to embrace the suck, right? That's part of the adventure is suffering. Um, but it's really only three to three or four miles from where the trailhead is. So, um, and then, you know, we may, again, we may end up moving. I want to make sure that we're not locked in that spot because, you know, you got to hunt where the elk are at and not where you're at. Um, but yeah, not too, not too far from the truck. So three or four miles in that, it sounds like you said trailhead. Is it a trail system to essentially that base camp? I don't believe so. It is near a, some old like vlogging roads and there was some infrastructure around there and I can't tell hundred percent what it is. Um, but and it, from what I understand, the trail itself is close to vehicle traffic. So we will hike in a large part, being able to hike it on a trail, um, but then get off that and, and find a place to, to uh, base camp from there. It looked like it was like a two mile hike on the old closed trailhead or the logging trail. And then about a, maybe a mile or so bushwhack of that. This is part gear question, but part ties to strategy. What are you guys doing for shelters? Yeah, I know you mentioned like uh, Steve had the long list and all that. What do you guys ultimately decide to do? Are you sharing one? Do you have separate solo shelters? What does that look like? We're doing separate shelters. Um, Matt and I have shared enough shelters in our lives. And you know, we feel like we'll just do some extra squats to carry the extra weight for our own shelters. And that's just us being, you know, spoiled into creature comforts. Um, so that's, we're going to do our own shelters. And I know if, uh, some folks are ultralight, um, if Steve was on this, he'd probably scold us for, for taking in bigger tents than we needed. But, um, yeah, we just, for this hunt, we're, we're, because we're not going that far in, we weren't too, we're too worried about shaving all the ounces, um, that we've got space to put our gear, it's kind of spread out and, uh, you know, not be too dialed in on that. So what'd you guys go, go with? I got a Nemo, uh, Nemo Dagger Osmo. It's one of the newer yeah. ones. It's got yeah. great reviews. And like Matt said, I have got a list of about 20 tents or so that I rated on <laughs> how big is a vestibule. And I mean, I put every every statistic on there, how much does it weigh, packability, size, volume, and then ultimately the appeal column, which is just, do I like the way it looks? Because let's be honest, that counts. <laughs> you got to like the way your stuff looks. And that was pretty that was pretty basic on that piece but i basically rated it all and then came out with the system and and ultimately the the nemo i think for the weight size to weight ratio was really really good um the reviews on were really really good i ended up watching a ton of not hunting but just backpacking um youtube channels with reviews on that and um that's what i'm selling with and i actually took my son camping for the first time um, a couple weeks ago and got to set that tent up and absolutely loved it and my son loved it too so that was even better but Nice. So you have the two man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I got the two man. How about for you, Matt? Some the same or something different? No, actually, I've got an old REI tent. Uh, it's about seven year old REI two person tent, and I'm gonna I'm gonna try to slug it out with that thing. Um, although it's very tempting just to get a new one, especially when I saw the the new Nemo. But <laughs> it's one that we've backpacked with Colorado before. So it's, it's a little two person backpacking tent. Okay. Cool. Sounds sounds solid. Um, the when you say move or day hunt from the base camp like one thing and you, you it sounds like you guys have thought uh 
I don't want to say thought of everything, have been very thoughtful in your decisions. But one thing that when people are newer to this, they can a little bit get in over their head with is like, oh yeah, we're just going to go, you know, pack in three, four or five miles and set up a base camp and day hunt from there. And then the, the potential, especially if they're chasing a bugle or what have you, that they end up another three, four miles from the base camp that is away from the rig. And now it's like, oh, now we're before we knew it, we're six, seven, eight miles away from the truck. What if we now have success? Right. So have you guys thought much specifically about any sort of, you know, setting a limit, setting a boundary on how far you're willing to pursue an elk or shoot an elk away from the true trailhead? Not really. Um, we haven't looked at it in terms of setting a limit. Uh, I know we mentioned earlier training, and and we're certainly training beyond. Of course, it's flat here in, in Kansas, so altitude and elevation are two things we can't really account for for training. But we're definitely trying to do a lot of heavier hikes, so we're prepared to go more than three or four miles. Uh, I think most of our our hikes, and it's been almost every morning trying to get out, um, either hiking or trail running or some kind of, you know, building legs to be to to be prepared for that. But no, I, I guess that's a, that's a great point. No, we, I don't think we've specifically discussed, this is our kind of our radius from where we, you know, we're going to set out from. And, um, one of the things that we're, we're still trying to figure out is, you know, found an elk, shot an elk. Now what? I mean, obviously we know how to, to skin it, bone it out and, and, you know, put it in game bags, hang it up. But do we hang it for a few days on the bone and then hike it back in and put it in a cooler in the truck and debone it there or kind of. That's one of the things we still haven't really uh, dialed in where it probably needs to be yet. Yeah, no, that's good. I mean, and it both on that distance question that I threw at you in terms of like how far, you know, are you setting those limits as well as what you just talked about in terms of timing after a kill. Um, both of those things can be greatly influenced by weather, right? So if it's, <laughs> yeah, you get out there in that second week at Colorado essentially could be anything right like it could be 85 it could be 30 um and you know based on that like you may be making different decisions on how far can we go and you know what do we need to do after a kill based on essentially just those weather patterns so um definitely though i think it's good to think through those things in advance of course but then you also have to realize that essentially the weather is going to be either helpful or harmful. It's either going to allow you to have some more time or maybe go a little bit more distance or it's, you know, we need to rein this thing back in because with this heat, we need to be able to get this thing out quick. And that is also going to reduce the distance that, you know, we can really cover with, with all that meat. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's definitely something we've talked about. Like you said, Colorado in September, it could be, I was looking at, I think the last five to seven years, historical weather kind of, you know, part of dying on the gear, what kind of, you know, what clothing do I need? What jacket, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm trying to look at historical weather and like, well, the typical weather is, you know, at thirties up to the mid seventies, but two, three years ago, it was lows in the teens and highs in the high thirties. So it's, you know, try to be prepared for everything so much so that I think Matt and I are both planning on bringing basically a second set of clothing that we can leave in the truck that if it gets, we get snowed in, Hey, let's just hike back to the truck real quick, swap out clothing and come back and continue hunting. Cause we're not gonna be that far away and we can kind of, kind of get away with that. But no, you're absolutely right. That's a huge piece If it's 88 degrees out and yeah. Okay. Well, we probably need to get these, this elk in the, in the, you know, into the coolers as fast as possible versus it's 38 degrees out. Yeah. Well, it can hang for a few days. Um, we have a, this is a, 
old podcast, but it made me uh, it made me think of it. Um, and we did a podcast quite a long time ago called "Save Your Meat from the Heat." Uh, and I'm looking up right now to see what episode number this is. It's actually episode 46. So it's back from 2016, a long old time. Um, but that is a, a helpful episode, I think, for you guys to maybe listen to. Honestly, I, I'm sure I could use a refresher on some of what we discussed. Um, but in particular, you know, it's it's called Save Your Meat from the Heat. So we talked about meat care obviously with heat, but it just in general, even if you guys were to have some, you know, moderate or cooler conditions, there's just a lot that we talked about in that episode that I think would be helpful. So that's just one to maybe throw on the list to listen to. Cause we did get through some of the discussion on, you know, deboning and bone in and all that stuff. But um, yeah, I mean, my, in general with elk, um, I prefer to keep things on the bone if at all possible um, really for several reasons. One is it makes packing easier. Um, it just have, you know, a bone in quarter is going to have more structure and more shape than a bunch of deboned meat, which is, you know, like 70 pounds of jello, just all shifty and mm-hmm. loose. And then at the end of the day, I feel like you, um, you end up with a better yield of meat when you keep it quartered in um, bone in and then, you know, do the processing or trimming later. Whereas a lot of times when guys will debone in the field, you know, you, you're in more of a rush. And especially if you don't have as much experience, you're not as careful about how you separate muscle groups or, um, logistically take this meat off the bone. And a lot of times that just kind of ends up with a bit more waste and stuff like that. So, mm-hmm. um, obviously with, with a bone in quarter, you're carrying a little bit more weight clearly. Um, but I've often seen that, and I don't say this from a like statistical perspective, but I would say that because you can generally pack a bone-in quarter and load it more effectively and more efficiently, it can actually load the pack better and feel better, even though you're carrying an extra few pounds, than a poorly loaded um, bunch of boned out meat that maybe is a little bit lighter, but because it's not loaded as properly or efficiently, it could actually feel just as heavy, if not heavier, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes total sense. And I did take a note. I will go back and listen to that episode. I spent a lot of time in the car for work. So I I listened to old podcasts quite a bit. Um, And Matt and I may have overthought this, but I mean, one of the things we considered was we definitely plan on keeping it quartered on the bone. Mm -hmm. But then once you get back to the truck, boning it out there, where you're not, you know, you're not as exhausted, hopefully, and really just for saving space in the cooler at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's that's kind of what we were thinking. Of course, weather dependent, right? If it's ridiculously hot out, that's going to change the change the way we we decide to do things. But yeah, are you? So let me ask you this: When you guys get home, would you be pretty much processing this all yourselves, or would you be taking it in somewhere? Process ourselves. At least I will, Matt. Okay. <laughs> I, I think so. I mean, the only I, I have a um, group down here that does my deer every once in a while, but yeah. it's because I drop off an entire deer, and I feel like we've already you've already done seventy percent of the work if it's yeah. cooler. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, it's not a bad strategy. Like you said, it'll save you a lot of space on getting home. My head goes to different variables of, um, let's say you guys fill a tag, pack it out, get to the truck, um, Mike question becomes like timing 
are we going to go back in and try and fill a second tag? Do we have enough time to do that? Is essentially boning out meat going to be a quote unquote waste of time when we could be hunting um, or could potentially be hitting the road to get to home? Uh, you know, if it's late in the trip, like you guys, maybe, maybe you're going to be way too exhausted or tired. So I wouldn't necessarily take it off the table um, in terms of boning it out to pack it. It'll definitely save you some space. And especially if you're in a situation where you have uh, the time to do it um, in the weather that cooperates, I don't think it's, you know, a bad idea to rule out by any means. Maybe it's something where like, to me, if that was going to be a potential option, I would just have like a, a folding table and some of that stuff to make the process a little bit easier and more mm-hmm. comfortable to do it. Um, and then, you know, maybe have like some different knives just for deboning and trimming back at the truck. Yeah, that was the plan was having the, you know, additional knives, bone saw, things like that. Um, and of course, like you said, timing is going to be huge. I mean, Matt has told me he's very sure he's going to kill an elk on day one. Oh yeah. Within the so first that, hour or two. So. so that leaves, that leaves like seven days for me to kill an elk. <laughs> and, uh, and as ridiculous as it is, I'm the unit we're hunting has an available add on black bear tag for 150 bucks. So I feel like I have to get that. Cause if I don't, I know I'll see a black bear. Um, so we got to make space to, for that. But that's, that's ancillary unless one just happens to walk by us. I mean, the elk is going to be the priority, but. <laughs> I, I like where heads at Matt. I mean, you might as well just get it done, get out of the way in that first hour. Exactly. <laughs> you gotta get a glimpse of us. It's like uh two two elk and a bear in the truck on the way home. We'll have, you know, we'll be feeding the neighborhood. So Yeah. <laughs> well, we both we both are drawing permits to hunt a local park here for a deer management yep. hunt this fall. So I've hit a, a lofty goal of a thousand pounds of wild game this year. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> The, if you guys, if you pick up a bear tag, would you have, is that like an immediate, if you get an opportunity, is there any hesitation on, ah, should we do that? Could it take away from the elk hunt or is that immediate? Like, heck yeah, I'd be stoked to shoot a bear no matter what. I would be absolutely stoked to shoot a bear, but it is definitely second field to the elk. Uh, We will not actively hunt a bear until after we have two elks tagged out. You know, I say if, you know, or when, uh, yeah, that's a big if. So Am I wasting 150 bucks? Probably. But if I don't get it, I know we're going to see one. <laughs> I know. I mean, I, I've i been in, uh, you know, zero pursuit of black bears in Colorado and been within bow range while cunning. So, I, you know, it's not out of the question to just have that quote unquote chance opportunity mm-hmm. or That's encounter by any means. kind of what it's for. And of course, Matt's going to kill his elk in the first hour and I'll kill mine, you know, day or two later. That gives us a few days still to hunt a bear. <laughs> solid, solid plan. <laughs> so what what other preparations or questions like again these are all before the hunt episode so like where's your head at what things are you thinking through working through uh i know that's super open-ended but uh yeah let's take the discussion where you guys are at so mark i have a question sure. you know we you uh, you brought up the gear I, i'd be curious um and because listen we're a bunch of gear dorks um I, I, is there a piece of gear that's maybe not obvious that you've picked up over the years that you, you've found to be helpful with you? Um, this sounds really weird. One of the, and I don't think this is so much the case anymore, but I backpacked for too long without a pillow um, and just didn't sleep as well. And then finally I was like, yeah, it's worth the two or three ounces uh, to have an actual inflatable pillow. I used to do the whole like shove your, puffy in a bag or what have you. And sometimes that works fine, but 
Um, I know it's a random one, but just getting good sleep is important. So whether that is a pillow, whether that's the potential of a more comfortable sleeping pad, like that's an area where maybe it's not always worth scraping every ounce off the bottom of the bucket um, because your comfort's going to matter. For some guys, maybe that is uh, having earplugs. For some guys, maybe it's an eye mask. For some guys, maybe it's having some sort of like sleep aid. Um, So I know that I would just say sleep can be really important. Um, And, you know, especially on a longer trip, like if you guys are going to make it the whole week out there and what have you, or have some hard days and put on some miles and, you know, some guys don't have much trouble sleeping, but some guys do. And I would just say that for me, I've noticed the, the better I can sleep, the better I can hunt. Um, And it's just that simple. So that's one area where my mind went. I know it's not like a sexy gear thing, but no, that that's great. Cause honestly, it reaffirms a decision that we had already made. I mean, Steve and I have slept on the ground too much in our life and we've gotten to the point at the ripe age of 41 that yeah no we're gonna sleep well and so we we got pillows we have decent um pat not pads but you know inflatable mattresses because that's where i i agree a bad night's sleep can set you on the wrong wrong path yeah yeah the other things that i feel like over the years what i've changed and gotten the most value out of isn't one particular uh, item. It's looking at how can I essentially have the most efficiency out of my gear. And so sometimes it's just by having less stuff. And again, this comes with experience of knowing what you do and don't need. And sometimes it's just a matter of realizing that usually the simpler option is the better option. Um, so even things like water filtration, right? Like I've tried all kinds of different water filters and all that stuff. And as, as silly as this may sound, you know, back way back in quote unquote, way back in the day, I used to use a pump style filter, right? I was like the standard and it was common a decade plus ago. And then I went to more of the squeeze style filters, but was doing them um, into a bladder. Um, I used to do it by pulling the bladder in and out and filling it. And then I did the whole like inline where you can squeeze and filter water into the bladder without taking it out of the pack. Um, and then now I'm doing more of uh, still a squeeze style filter, but kind of just filling up on demand. Um, and again, this all sounds like really simple, but just realizing I spend way less time and energy getting water now than I used to. <laughs> and during a hunt that matters to me anyway, where it's not like this big complex, like, oh, let me stop at a water source and get out these five things and tear apart my pack to get out my bladder and then filter, which takes a while and then put it all back. And like you end up spending this 15, 20 minutes, which is fine if you already plan on taking a break. But now it's like I can walk by a water source and scoop up a bunch of dirty water and either filter it then or filter it later. It doesn't matter. Like it's just, you know, streamlining things. Um just allows me to focus more on the hunt and use my energy where it should versus using my energy on other things that don't matter for hunting itself. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. What else you guys got? What other questions, things you're weighing, going through all that stuff? You know, from, uh, I was going to ask from your experience, you know, what are some misconceptions that, that new hunters have about hunting elk and, and kind of what advice would you have what what are the pitfalls that every new hunter has that Matt and I need to avoid and what advice do you have for us on that yeah I mean I think a lot of that goes into um 
my head goes in two places. One is distance and the other is calling. So by distance, it's like, how far do you have to go? Um, and that's just never to me. I don't really look at how far I have to go anymore. I just look at finding pockets that I think will hold elk and have less hunting pressure. And sometimes that's far and sometimes it's not far at all, but it's in a less obvious place. So I think getting back to that conversation of like mileage, it does matter and it's worth thinking about. And you, especially for newer elk hunters who don't, um, you don't know what your capabilities are in terms of packing out an elk until you've packed out an elk. (laughs) So you do need to have like some sort of limits and make sure that you don't end up like thinking, oh, I've trained with you know, 60 or 70 or 80 pounds or whatever, and done my training hikes and I can pack out an elk seven miles or whatever. Um, maybe true, but maybe those miles are difficult. Maybe they're not on trail. Maybe you have heat that's not on your side. Like, so again, I'm getting repetitive there with that whole topic, but distance to either find elk distance in terms of how far you can pack elk. Um, and thinking that distance alone is going to separate you from other hunters maybe was true you know 5 10 15 20 years ago but just isn't as true today um so i just think don't get caught up too much on distance period you do need to think about distance and your capabilities but in terms of a hunting opportunity don't get all caught up on distance so that's one thing then the other thing is calling um and this definitely you know, there's people who are very effective callers, partially because they're good callers. That certainly helps. <laughs> um, and then partially because they rely on their calling so much that they're just willing to continue to hunt and use that strategy until they find an elk that wants to play that game. But there's other ways to kill an elk besides just calling. Right. Um, so I think your, your calling is important and practicing calling is important to be able to use calls are important, but I think it's, um, I think beginners probably either rely too much on calling and call too much or not call in the right way at the right time, or they just, they think they have to only rely on calling. Like, so some do it, I would say willingly because they think I just need to go call. I need to go call. And then some guys feel like they just have to go call and end up doing it. Um, and it's just not always the case. So yeah, the calling stuff, great practice it, do it, learn all about it. I mean, I love it, but I just say, don't get so narrowly focused on calling being the only option or the only strategy, if that makes sense. That makes total sense. And that's something I've been practicing. You know, I've got a bunch of mouth calls in my truck and I've got a bugle tube in the back seat and I'll be driving on a work trip. And, you know, if somebody cruised by me on the highway, they'd see me blowing through a tube and having no idea what I'm doing. And I'm trying to practice bugling and I I suck at chuckling. So I still need to work on that. But um, to that point, though, what are the strategies besides calling that would you say be, you know, useful to focus on and rely on and and to not over-focus on calling? Yeah. I mean, I think, um, 
one like easy option is like okay glassing so some areas are going to be glassable some just flat out aren't i've hunted a lot of country in colorado that glassing would not be effective just because of the country and the terrain um so that's one thing obviously more open countries you know creates more glassing opportunities for example to narrow back on calling and talk about how i think you would adapt your calling to the situation um an example I always come back to and a lesson I've always learned is early on elk would be sometimes, you know, I would locate an elk in the morning either because I threw out a locator and he responded or they just were talking like it was the right time of September elk are interacting elk are making noise. I would jump in on that quote unquote conversation and like, Oh, there's an elk and he's talking. Let me, talk to him let me try and call him in and this is especially true in the morning uh, that i would make these mistakes is essentially trying to think okay this bull's ready to play he's talking so let me call him in was how i used to look at that and now i much more look at that as if this elk is talking again especially in the morning i'm not doing anything other than closing the distance I'm not calling back. If it was my locator that got him talking, I'm not going to keep piping up unless I need to. If he's calling on his own, I'm going to stay completely silent, make my presence unknown, not try to be another bull, not try to do anything other than close that distance um, and just stay more patient. Like it's especially early in the morning and especially with like less experience, you just get so excited if you hear elk and going back to what you guys are saying, like you want to have that interaction, that encounter. And I think early on, I would call just to feel like I'm doing the thing, right? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Whereas now I would just shut up, close the distance, uh, stay patient, try to stay with that elk. If he's moving, I wouldn't try and call him back my direction. I wouldn't necessarily even try to circle around. I would just try and dogtail and then really wait till late morning or midday and make a play. Um, you know, maybe at that point I'm calling when it's like, okay, he's down, he's bedded, he's settled. Um, now let me challenge him. Now let me think some other bull snuck into his little domain that he feels comfortable in. Cause that's where he's bedded. Um, and maybe he has some cows with him. and now I'm going to call and kind of be that threat or maybe, now I'm going to be that cow that kind of wandered off and, you know, he needs to um, circle back within his herd type thing. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I don't think it's a bad thing to go out and like say nothing's going on, right? Like I'm not saying don't go out and call or don't locate. It's just um, I think I used calling too much at the wrong times with the wrong goals thinking I could at any time if a bull was talking i used to interpret that as like okay this bull wants to play let me call him in and that's just often not the case mark on the you know obviously stalking a bull whatnot have you given much thought so one one thing i have been thinking about is kind of the scent game while you're camping right so obviously in the whitetail woods here you know i don't think we're like freaks when it comes to keeping our center control but obviously we, we play the wind you know, we usually keep our clothing a little separate, but, you know, camping for seven days, backpacking for seven days. I mean, do you have any advice on 
how to keep it under control or at that point are you just you got to play the win because there's no, you're not going to do anything to keep your scent game under control yeah the latter yeah, okay. <laughs> don't, yeah. don't try and do anything essentially <laughs> like anything you can try is only going to work for the first x amount of hours slash minutes right. like it, no matter what you do with your clothing or your body or anything like that um you know, it's just not going to be effective when you're hiking in multiple miles and setting up a base camp and do all that stuff. So, um, yeah, it's, it's really just a matter of playing the wind, you know, during, like, if you guys are out there a full week and what have you, um, during that time, like, feel free to take a little Creek bath, wet wipe bath, what have you, but that's not even, that's more for your own sanity than it is the animals. So, um, yeah, really just playing the wind and, you know, even in that, like, that's a, a good thing is sometimes that's why you need to be patient is just waiting to realize like now's not the right time to make this play because of the wind. But maybe if we, you know, wait this out, whether that's a morning, evening, thermal change, what have you, um, then that's a, a scenario where being patient can help you get the wind right versus just rushing in. And, you know, you could just, you can't, you can't outsmart an elk's nose period. Um, so just always be aware of it. Don't be like, obsessive about it like some guys are constantly walking around puffing and getting a feel for the wind um i would just say pay attention to it and then in when there is a probability or some sort of encounter you're approaching a bull then yeah like do everything you can um and then just realize too that again this always goes back into time of day and how much prevailing wind there is or isn't, but even things like getting in the shadows, getting in a Creek bottom, using a little draw, um, can help and change how the wind interacts. Um, you know, there's been times where kind of that mid to late morning where it's going from the kind of that downward thermal to an upward thermal, a lot of times that, you know, that isn't a hard transition. So it doesn't just, that switch doesn't flip and you could be on a hillside and part of that hillside is going to have more of the upward warm thorm- thermal because um, maybe it's more open and getting more sun exposure, but you could duck into the trees or duck into like a little creek draw and that's still working downhill. So sometimes moving 30, 50, 60, 100 yards is going to create a different um, a different wind that allows you to make a different approach. And so just paying attention to those little things can make a huge difference kind of talking about the thermal shifting and, and you know, throughout the day and, and planning for that, knowing that it's not a, you know, like you said, it's not a, a light switch that flips the wind changes direction immediately, but through the, the course of a, of a day of hunting uh, in the mountains, kind of what's your, what's your, your, I guess I'd say play by play, like in the morning you're doing this and then midday you're doing this. And then the evening, like how much of that is walking around, you know, versus, sitting and waiting glassing you know let's assume i think you know we're in from e-scouting doesn't look like there's gonna be a ton of good glassing opportunity it's pretty pretty treated um there's no signs of any you know recent wildfires anything like that so um but like midday are you still are you still walking around are you still covering distance um are you sitting kind of waiting how does that work yeah i mean it's it's hard without knowing the terrain and picturing how the how it lays out. Right. Um, I mean, obviously as I'm sure you've heard like the general patterns of moving from feeding in the morning to more of the bedding areas, um, you know, into the timber, uh, 
late morning or to midday. And again, this could change on hunting pressure. This could change on the moon. So there's different things that can affect the timing of that. Um, but if you do, you know, one is just you guys getting a lay of the land, right? Like getting out there, um, starting to cover some ground, maybe using locator bugles if you're not hearing much. And then the other thing I would say that sometimes, you know, don't get, don't get so focused on finding elk that you're ignoring elk sign, right? Um, sometimes it's just a matter of, hey, we haven't seen an elk yet, but am I, are we seeing sign or not? And is it fresh sign? Um, and sometimes you may find fresh sign and don't find the elk. But when you do think, okay, well, there was sign here. So they moved through here. How can I piece together this puzzle? So like, when do I think they moved through here? Why do I think they moved through here? Um, and then starting to piece that together and and really looking at that. Same for calling right like if you hear an elk that's a vocal and you feel like he moved a certain direction just begin to ask yourself those questions why is he heading that direction at this time not only where is he headed but where do i think he came from and do i think that's a pattern right it's just a piece of information that's going to help you begin to put this puzzle together and the more information you can get, whether that is sign, whether it's calling, um, hearing vocalizations, understanding how elk are moving and using the country, the better picture you're you're just going to have to be more effective. Um, so maybe you know, just based on what you are seeing or hearing, you're going to get a picture. But if you're not seeing or hearing much, that's when it does become more a matter of we need to we need to cover some ground, right? Like we need to go find some sign or find some elk either visually or audibly to hear them. Um, and so you do need to, at some point cover ground if you have to, for sure. Um, so again, I know that that's not like a quick answer of, Hey, here's what I do in the morning versus the afternoon versus the evening. Cause it's just going to depend on what I'm hearing, what I'm seeing, how the country's laid out. You know, there are things, um, like say it's midday, it's been quiet, you're not seeing much, you're not hearing much. Um, my head basically goes to two things. Is One is how can we cover ground efficiently? Meaning how can we kind of essentially cover the most ground for the least amount of effort? Um, that's not to say you're not hiking, but how are we hiking smart, not just hard? Um, and being able to cover as much ground to look for those things, to be able to maybe hear that midday bedded elk or maybe able to stumble upon some sign. Um, and then obviously, obviously the most efficient way to cover ground is if you can to glass for sure. Um, so, you know, and then it's just a matter of if you guys are covering ground and you're hunting out of a base camp, beginning to understand how, okay, if this base camp is the hub, the center of my hunting area, how can I hunt out of that effectively and then obviously come back to it? So I would, I would really look at your base camp and think, and this is another thing to think through ahead of time. If we pack into this base camp and we're here for two days or three days or four days, 
and we're not seeing sign, we're not seeing elk, we're not hearing elk, you know, think through the timing of how long are we willing to stay in this area. But let's say you do say, okay, we're going to go in and we're going to hunt from this base camp for four days. If you're going to do that, I would have a plan for how you're, what are you going to do for each of those four days? And be willing to throw that plan out the window, right? Like if you're hearing elk a different direction or seeing elk or sign or what have you, throw the plan out the window. But if you go in there and you're not hearing seeing elk or seeing sign right away, there's a preset like this is the plan, this is the script for day one. We're gonna hunt out this ridge system, um, move in this direction so far. Uh, maybe we're going to hunt the same way back. Maybe we're going to make this loop around, et cetera. But that's day one. And then day two is like, okay, we can move in this direction. We can use this ridge system. Or maybe we drop through this draw and come up the other side and then work our way back this way. Um, and you, of course, you do want to tie that in with is we're making this plan to cover country. Like, hey, this makes the most sense for the morning versus the evening because there's this like feed to bed transition or midday. This puts us over this nice, like more northern facing timbered ridge where maybe something's bedded and maybe we spend some time here listening first and then maybe we do a cold call setup or uh, something like that. So just thinking through that strategy um, is I think more important than what I can lay out in terms of here's what you should do morning, midday and evening. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it does. Yeah, I think I think the the main thing is like, have a plan on how to use your time and and how you're going to use the country. And again, you need to be willing to throw that out the window, but you also need to have it because when you get in there, you don't just want to be like wandering around. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> how was the week? Well, we wandered around the woods a lot. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that would make a very interesting follow-up. <laughs> we got lost. <laughs> Um, I guess it, on a, a not later note, but I was I was curious: is there a favorite thing that you have to eat on the trail, Mark? Whether it's like something you bring or something you make in camp. Yeah, I mean, there's a there's definitely a few different things. I generally don't do like for archery elk. Uh, let's keep it in context. So for archery elk, is different than some other hunts. Um, for archery elk, it's generally there's this possibility that we're up and right away or maybe even before daylight like we're chasing a bugle um you know we're pursuing something so for archery elk in particular to start the day i want something that i can have on the go that's quick and i don't have to cook i don't have to do anything like that now if it's a chill day or this weather system rolls through or you know there's been days with archery elk i've been we've gotten unexpected snow overnight and what have you. So maybe I do chill and have some coffee or what have you, but essentially I want for archery elk specifically to be able to have something quick on the go. And I've had those days where you wake up and before you know it, it's four five, six hours later, right? Cause maybe you were fortunate enough to be pursuing a bull or chasing a bugle or what have you. So I would just say to, to start the day, have something as an option that you don't have to cook that you can eat on the go that's pretty easy to eat and that could be um you know digestible enough where if you are essentially waking up and like hiking for four hours that you're good with that right um so for me the easy button there is pop tarts and i joked before <laughs> on the podcast about the only time i eat pop tarts is when i'm hunting um so partially they're just a treat but they are an easy thing to like 
get some calories in quick. They have some sugars to give me some energy and I can just like down a pop tart pretty easy. Um, if I need to, you know, maybe it's later in the midday where I sit down and have a little bit, something more substantial, or maybe even make my coffee or something like that. So, um, that's one that comes to mind. And again, that I'm kind of tailoring that specifically to archery elk. Then, yeah, for me, like more midday, you get into those quote unquote slower times, potentially you're going to sit and take a longer break. That's when I tend to prefer something like, um, you know, if I pack like some jerky or something more, um, substantial, like more meat, more fats, more proteins, a little bit if needed. Um, certainly for dinners, like I, I love, you know, some of my homemade stuff that I've talked about, but obviously peak refuel on a bunch of those companies, there's so many good meal options out there. Um, you know, definitely just count on again, uh, potentially eating late, uh, with archery elk. Like there's been so many nights where we're hunting to dark and we maybe are getting to camp well after dark. And at that point you just want something to eat up and eat and probably crash. So, um, you know, favorite foods, like everybody's going to be a little bit personal and variable. There's super simple stuff that you can get anywhere. Like Nature Valley makes these called, uh, they're called nut butter biscuits. So they're like two mm. crackery type biscuits with a, a layer of nut butter in between. For whatever reason, those always sound good to me, kind of no matter what. Um, those are pretty much a staple because they're cheap. You can get them anywhere and I always like them. Um, obviously some, some variety and then uh, things like that, you know, and personal preference comes into play big time. But yeah, I would just say for archery elk, like, there's been times where I wake up and eat. There's been times where I wake up and just start hiking, may not eat quite a bit later. There's just a lot of variability for that for me versus you get into some of these later season hunts or colder hunts and maybe they're more glassing heavy and they're not as, that's the thing with archery elk. You could go from zero to 100 in a split second. And sometimes you go from zero to 100 and that encounter that you think is going to be quick ends up lasting like three hours <laughs> you just don't know so i will say because of the um unknowns about it do make sure that you stay on top of calories so that's one mistake i think a lot of guys would make is getting so consumed in the hunt if they're fortunate enough to have like encounters and success and you know be an elk is don't forget to actually eat as weird as that sounds and same for hydration i think that especially for guys like yourself coming from the midwest stay on top of hydration. It makes such a huge difference um, in how you feel that, yeah, absolutely make sure you're staying on top of hydration. No, that's great advice. Uh, one of the things that Matt and I've talked about, you know, again, putting together spreadsheets of meal plans, things like that, and things that I've, you know, advice that we've read online or heard in a podcast and kind of putting together our own list and looking at, you know, calories per ounce and, you know, kind of analyzing like that. But um, coming from the military, that was always one thing is like, don't wait till you're hungry to eat, eat when you have time, yeah. you know, you need to force calories and not forget about, I'm not hungry. I'll eat later. Well, you may not have time later. So I think that's a, a habit that, uh, Matt and I both have, um, from being out in the field where, you know, definitely getting those calories and make sure they're easier. Like you said, getting the sugars on early on and, and have that energy, um, especially when you might need it. I try not to go you know, more than two to three hours without something. I mean, maybe it's something small, maybe it's, you know, 
every two hours, I only get 100 to 150 calories or whatever. Um, but, I, you know, you don't want to extend this. It's been three, four plus hours um, and you haven't had any fuel on board. If you're covering country and things like that, like you're going to get behind the eight ball for sure. This is a kind of off off topic from the hunting itself, but are there any any, any rituals or traditions that you kind of developed over your years of hunting? Like here's your the one that we've got to do, right? Um, rain dance, something like that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what comes to mind. Um, I don't know. Honestly, all that comes to mind is like when I think of rituals and traditions, I think of some stilly moments I've had with people that aren't necessarily like a ritual or tradition, but just funny, silly moments. And I think the big picture for me is like, just don't forget to have fun. <laughs> You're out there uh-huh. and it's like easy to get caught up in, you know, oh crap, we haven't found elk or we needed to find elk or maybe we had this encounter and we blew it. And like you're, I, for me anyway, I tend to get like so analytical and into the hunt and thinking through all the things and should we do this or that or et cetera, that sometimes I just need to remember to like, oh man, we're out here to have fun. Like, let's have some fun. So, you know, play jokes, tell funny stories, do fun stuff. Like to me, when I think of rituals and traditions, there's not one thing um, from like a luck perspective or what have you, but it's just remembering to have fun. Uh, and, you know, sometimes that's just being silly and goofy and stuff. Oh, Matt's good at that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't take myself too seriously. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. That's a good question though. Now, now I want to, maybe by the, after the podcast episode, I'll have thought of something. Clearly, <laughs> it's not too important of a ritual if I can't think of it. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the only thing I do this isn't something I do ever since the very first uh, like out of state Western hunt that I did when I, uh, I have a little note from my wife and a little, like my daughter was super young at the time, little scribbly quote unquote note she wrote me. And I've carried that thing with me all of the time everywhere. Um, so it's not a ritual or tradition, but I have like this little memento or what have you that I carry with me all the time for sure that's with cool. those like, I, like, I keep it with my license and stuff it's like a good luck charm that's cool yeah um here's then this might be maybe more relevant for for those of us that are flatlanders from the midwest and i know you're in missouri so um but looking into like preventing altitude sickness i mentioned earlier my background's respiratory therapy and i've done papers on high, high altitude pulmonary edema and things like that and, you know, prophylactic treatment. And one of the things I'm looking at getting, I called my doctor's office, like, yeah, I'd like to get a prescription for Dimox. Is that something you've seen that's, you know, common? And does, you know, any other strategy you have just to help avoid, not that I think I'm getting altitude sickness, but again, <laughs> I, I want to make sure we don't get up there on day two. And all of a sudden I've had altitude sickness before and it sucks. Um, I don't want my hunt to be ruined and man, I have to go wander off on his own because I can't get out of bed because I'm miserable. I'll touch on Dimox in a second. The, I, this goes for me, it goes back to hydration, even leading up to the hunt um, is like two, three days before the hunt, make sure you stay on top of hydration. And then also during the travels, make sure you stay on top of hydration. Um, when you're on the road, a lot of guys don't want to stop, right? So it's, sometimes it's like, oh, I'm not going to drink because I don't want to have to stop and pee. Well, you need to make sure you stay hydrated. Or maybe it's, you know, you're on the road and you're eating gas station crap food and drinks and stuff like that. So you're not actually staying hydrated with something decent for you. Um, so again, go back to hydration, 
make sure you stay on top of that, not only during the hunt, but really for a couple of days leading up to it and then all through it. Um, one thing we've historically done, I don't know that you have to do because our drive is a little bit further than it is for you guys, but um, just some sort of sleep at elevation. So like if I was you guys coming from the KC area, as you mentioned, like maybe it's going to be a 8, 10, 12 hour drive, totally doable to knock it out. But instead of like getting to the trailhead and hiking in super late at night or in the evening, I would probably, depending on the timing, maybe go ahead and just like sleep at the trail. So you're like, you're getting some rest at elevation. You're not starting with a super hard effort after a long drive with crap rest and then going straight into now you're doing physical exertion straight at elevation. So like that extra, maybe one night of sleep at elevation, your body's starting to already acclimate to that. And plus you're not throwing it a big physical demand right away. Um, and then related to that is, you know, don't go too hard too soon. Like realize this isn't a sprint. If you guys have a week to hunt, uh, I always have to force myself to slow down usually a little bit on the hike in just cause I'm so excited and jacked. Um, and so I'm not saying I just, you know, take forever to hike in, but you also don't need, depending on your fitness level, don't go too hard too soon. Mm-hmm. Um, and just, you know, realize that maybe you are going to feel terrible. A lot of times the first, you know, the first climb or the first hike at elevation, no matter how good a shape I'm in, I just feel like I've never done it before <laughs> and that's okay. Um, so yeah, all those things in terms of Diamox, I don't have any personal experience with it. I've never taken it. Uh, the only, a quote unquote personal antidote is a friend of mine that I hunted with took Diamox and actually had his side effects actually ruined his hunt from Diamox. So, oh wow. Um, I don't know how common that is, but like anything else, any medication, any drug can have side effects. Uh, in this case, he had hunted at elevation quite a bit with no issues, but on this particular hunt, we were going a bit higher than what we're used to. So he's like, "Yeah, maybe it's a good idea. Um, and he actually, his hunt was ruined at first. What we thought was maybe altitude sickness ended up really being a side effects of taking the medication. Cause as he stopped taking it, he actually got better, um, so again, I'm not saying don't do it. I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but just realize that that is a potential. And then just everyone in my research, and we've done podcasts on this with, you know, PhDs and people who have studied this extensively. So I'm not spouting this just as my opinion, but basically to recap is essentially even the scientists and people who make a career of studying altitude sickness don't fully understand why more people are prone to it and some aren't mm-hmm. and that you could have not experienced any issues in the past, but that doesn't mean you won't in the future. Um, so, you know, there's certain things you can do both with medication and quote unquote protocol, but really if you look at acclimation, most of the experts agree either get to altitude and do something as quick as you can and get it over with like the people who train for a race, for example, that's only going to last hours, not days and days and days. One strategy is get there, do the race, be done. Mm -hmm. And then the other strategy is get there, but you need like two weeks or so to really acclimate and then do the event, right? Like neither of those is applicable though, to guys who want to come out and hunt the West for a week. 
You can't yeah. spend your time off acclimating uh-huh. and you can't just get there and get it over with. I mean, it sounds like Matt, you're going to kill a bull the first day. I get it. But um, essentially if you're going to hunt for a week, just know that you may have some sort of window where you don't feel good. You have low grade headache, et cetera. Again, stay on top of food, stay on top of hydration, and then know the difference between what is some symptoms of maybe not feeling great at altitude versus what is, you know, true altitude sickness that could be life-threatening, right? If you get into like yeah. the coughing, coughing up blood, of course, like any of the true, truly bad symptoms, then it's just a matter of getting getting it's down, getting, 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 getting down. Validation. That's it. Yeah. That's a medical medical issue for sure. I don't think we're going to be, our altitude is going to be quite that high. So I'm not too worried about getting that severe. It's more the, the low grade symptoms that are not life-threatening, not a medical emergency, just ruin your, ruin your day type experience. But, um, I like that you mentioned, you know, spending a night maybe before uh, exerting yourself. So Matt and I are looking at kind of kick that around and we're going to leave a day early spend the night on the west side of Denver so we can just stay in a hotel. And that way we're not hiking in in the dark and setting up camp in the dark. And him and I have done that before we've hiked in a spot where we wake up in the morning. We're like, wow, this was a really lousy spot. We probably should have been 50 feet over there. Mm-hmm. And if it hadn't been, you know, 1030 at night in dark, we, we would have done that. So instead of trying to make, add that extra frustration for ourselves, we're going to spend the night in Denver. And then we've only got, you know, four, four and a half hours or something like that the next day where we can get in, you know, get some rest, get in the middle of the day, hiking in daylight and, uh, and hopefully, you know, like you said, start slow, not, not try to chase down a, an elk the, the very first minute. Just first couple hours. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I'm, we, we got a list of questions, Mark. I think you, you've, I think you've answered all of them. I really like, again, the confirmation of the sleep. Um, I mean, Steve and I have been wary about a couple weights because what ounces are pounds, pounds are pain kind of thing. Um, but that's one thing, trying to get on top of our sleep game and then our food and hydration game. That's that's the biggest difference from when 20 years ago when we were doing this. Um, it's been helpful. Yeah, cool. Yeah, I would the final like one thing to throw at you guys too is because I know what this is like coming from the Midwest and a whitetail mindset, like going back to even how you're asking about scent, like I know where you're coming from. Yeah. The other thing you need to, I'm not saying this like you personally, anyone who's a Midwest whitetail guy needs to get over with is be willing to be more aggressive than you think you can get away with. Um, in terms of things like movement or covering ground, uh, obviously whitetail are just wired, right? Like you can't get away with movement, we're often not used to covering any sort of ground, right? Because we're hunting from a tree stand or saddle or blind, what have you, and think, you know, in the Midwest, a lot of times you can't move without making a bunch of noise. Um, just realize that you can be and often should be way more aggressive than you think. And that I say that particular for guys who are coming from like a Midwest whitetail experience with elk. Don't be afraid to go at them a little bit, to cover ground, to make a little bit of noise, um, to move, to create a shooting position or get in a shooting window. That's definitely a lesson that I've just learned over time too, of get over my whitetail mindset a little bit, realize I can get away with more, do more, um, and be more aggressive. And that that's often do it with some common sense. Right. But often that's going to pay off more than just like sitting back and waiting. 
So that's one thing in particular for, for you guys, just like a mindset. Cause again, I've been there, done that. <laughs> that's yeah, a lesson that's, I've learned. That's, that's absolutely true with whitetail. You're trying to sneak in and not even, you know, make any noise on gravel and, you know, going in three hours early so you can take two hours to walk 30 yards. But yeah, it's a, that'll definitely be a habit to make sure we have to break when we go in there, um, <laughs> make a little more noise. Yeah, for sure. Matt's been practicing how to sound like an elk when he walks around. Yeah, always. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, I'm excited for you guys. It's going to be so cool to hear how this goes for sure. I appreciate it. I appreciate you having us on. And, and I have to I have to throw out the cheap plug because it hasn't happened yet that Matt and I did both buy uh, K4s the day they came out. So we both yeah. got oh, K4 cool. 5000s. Yeah. Yeah, actually, I don't know if we should mention this or not. <laughs> we actually ordered them about three hours before they went live on the website because Matt found the URL. <laughs> so he, oh, that's fine. You don't need to. I knew that could happen. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, our, I think we ordered ours at about six thirty, six forty-five a.m. the day they came out. Yeah, we got again, I, like, ball. I ordered it at three hours ago. I don't know why it's not in my house yet. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then Matt somehow got his a day early. I was furious oh, with yeah. uh, UPS or whoever shipped it. FedEx <laughs> and we, we've gotten. Like, uh, We've been been training with them, but also been in camping with the kids with them. So oh, cool. we, we packed them up and moved. So yeah, my yeah. son's eight. So we went camping. He carried almost nothing, and it's just like a school backpack. I threw like a pillow in there for him or something. I got it at Shields or or Bass Pro or something. And everything else we had was in mine. So nice. my pack is, I've I've filled it. <laughs> yeah, you guys I, have I took, both. Did you get five thousands? Both of you? Uh, yeah, both got five thousands. The hip belt pouch, the Nalgene pocket. Um, it's like, huh, what accessories are coming out that I still haven't bought yet? Yeah. Oh, the crib, the crib's out now. We should get yep, that. Exactly. <laughs> you guys launched the 2200 pack and Matt texts me. He's like, you going to get it? Like, yeah. <laughs> oh, we met a new rifle white tail day pack. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Well, I'd be, uh, yeah. I don't know if you guys are, you know, I know you said you had the farm, but you know, it's fun to see some of the guys who use them for like saddle setups or tree stands, what have you. So keep me posted if you guys do anything like that. Yeah, well, it, it is going to be my my rifle set up for whitetail, so I can carry my you know my chair and my my shooting sticks and things like that because I'm old and lazy and I take those creature comforts with me. I'm just doing in a, a whitetail rifle hunt. But uh. well, cool guys, it sounds like you have a a great plan, a good opportunity. Like I said, that intel you have, but more than that, just like a good mindset to go have fun and enjoy the whole process. Hunt hard, yes, but. Um, just make sure that you're enjoying it. So I know that you guys are going to be quote unquote successful no matter what, but I'm excited to see, hear all about it. I really appreciate it. And, yeah, and like Matt so. said, it's, it's one of the best things that we've gotten out of this. The, the lessons is just ask people, ask people for information and they're happy to share it in most cases. And, and that's, you know, both of us knowing absolutely nothing about elk hunting, you know, going out there and feel like we're at least moderately prepared. Yeah. I, I bumped into a, a bio, like biologist in Denver two weeks ago and just made an off the cuff remark that we just drew a tag and he big smile on his face. And he mentioned how he owned that place for 10 years and gave me his card and said, reach out. I love doing hunter outreach. So, I mean, you know, you don't get what you don't ask for. I mean, the fact that we've just opened ourselves up stuff like this is like, Hey, we don't know what we're doing. You know, yeah, love, love information. People have just been overwhelmingly helpful with not just points, but just tips of the trade. And we've been very thankful for that. Well, that is a wrap on this one. Best of luck to you guys, and I can't wait to hear how this hunt goes. 
Hopefully you guys listening are also going to be tuning in in the future months and really the future weeks as we hear more before the hunt episodes and then later this fall, the after the hunt episodes. Appreciate you guys tuning in. If you have any questions, comments, suggestions, or want to share your hunting story with us, send an email to podcast at exomountgear.com and we'll talk to you soon.